This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. Today on the show, a physicist takes on his field. Robert Laughlin has been agitating for a new approach to physics. He says that many of his colleagues have a fundamental misunderstanding of nature, getting lost in the minutiae when they should be looking at the big picture. Call him a contrarian or a renegade, if you will, but when a renegade is an accomplished scientist with a Nobel Prize, people do tend to listen. I did, and you can too. I'm going to air a conversation we had a couple of years ago. And then a little later in the show, with the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music about to launch its new season, an interview with conductor and music director Marin Alsop. Stay tuned. Now part one of today's show. You can't understand architecture just by studying bricks. And you're not going to get much out of a symphony if you just analyze the individual notes. It's pretty obvious to the point of cliché. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But the physicist Robert Laughlin says that many of his colleagues have lost sight of this basic truth. They become too enamored of reductionism, the idea that if you really want to understand something, just break it down to its elementary pieces and work your way back up from there, particle by particle, atom by atom. That, Laughlin says, is like looking at a Monet through a microscope. Focus on the brush strokes, you miss the big picture. Laughlin explains that when many small things get together to form one bigger thing, a whole new set of rules emerge, collective laws, and you can't deduce those from the bottom up. Robert Laughlin was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1998 for his work on one such collective phenomenon, a quirky state of matter called the fractional quantum Hall effect. And he says that such emergent principles are much more widespread than most physicists recognize. He says collective law may explain many of the most important phenomena in physics, like the speed of light, gravity, and the properties of the vacuum of space. Laughlin's assault on the assumptions of modern physics is summed up in his book, A Different Universe, Reinventing Physics from the Bottom Down. Here's my conversation with Bob Laughlin. Well, let's start with that exercise that they call in politics defining the opposition. Sure. And the opposition in this case is reductionism. You bet. Yeah. How do you define that? I define it as a belief that uh, all things in your life will become clearer if you understand the parts of which they're made. Now, I think uh, from, the, from an outsider's perspective, um, I and a lot of other people would say that physics is all about reductionism. Isn't it all about seeking those few magic formula that explain how everything works from the bottom up? Is that what we mean by reductionism? Yes, And it turns out that not all of us are coming from there. I'm a typical Bell Labs alumnus. And in that culture, we're concerned about making machines work, using the law of physics. And, uh, of course, that's uh, the semiconductor industry, transistors, computers, all that stuff is very physical. But, of course, it's chemistry also and systems and very experimental So in that discipline, we learn painfully that this reductionist belief system isn't very helpful. Lots of times you have to look at what nature does and infer from it what's happening. My favorite example of this is superconductivity, which simply disappears 
if you take it apart to see how it works. It's inherently collective. These are the emergent phenomena That's right. with which the book is largely concerned. So what is the principle of emergence? When I use the word, it simply means a collective principle of nature. So, for example, um, when we look at a flock of birds, uh, we can describe the motion of the flock, the actions of the flock, without knowing much about the individual birds or exactly. anything about the individual birds. That's a birds. beautiful example. Uh, of course, that's living things, but even very primitive ones do. One of my favorite examples is just a piece of table salt. Uh, individual atoms can't be rigid. 100 atoms can't be rigid. 1,000 atoms can't be rigid. Rigidity is a thing that emerges as the number of atoms gets very, very large. And uh, it's sort of like pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Rigidity is a beautiful example. It comes from crystallinity, and uh, a crystal of anything will be rigid. It doesn't matter what it is. Another example I love to quote is ordinary hydrodynamics. So the sound is going from my voice box to your ear through the air, and it maintains its integrity when it does that. Why does it do that? The air molecules are all bouncing around at random. Well, the answer is there's an emergent principle called hydrodynamics, a set of them actually, uh, which enforces the integrity of sound, and it doesn't matter what the air molecules uh, are. As if that principle is operative, then you can hear my voice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess it's unsurprising that um, collective rules would apply to higher-order phenomena like the, uh, the economy or social structures or uh, ecosystems and things like that. But uh, if your book contains a surprise, it's the fact that it applies so fundamentally to things we think of as very basic in physics. That's right. And most people are surprised by that. It's perfectly obvious that human beings self-organize or herds of animals. But that atoms should do it is sh as a shock. Actually, it seems trivial, but there's an interesting historical thing that's happened in my lifetime, which is we've come across some simple things that don't organize simply. And when they don't, you can't get anywhere with the science on them. Very, very simple physical things we have in condensed matter physics, which have been mysteries for 15 years, even though... They're, conceptually, they're childishly simple. Let's talk about some more uh, examples of emergent principles, uh, principles of organization. The phases of matter, something we're all familiar with, at least the three classic phases of solid, liquid, and gas. You say these are collective phenomena. How so? Well, uh, s solidness and liquidness and vaporness cease to be distinct when the number of atoms is small. Moreover, we know that it, it isn't dependent on the substance being made of atoms. It can be made of big molecules, made of anything. It doesn't really matter. The nature of liquids and gases is universal. It seems so obvious. You, know, you, see, you see these things around in your life. It seems obvious. It actually isn't obvious. It's a fact. It's a very shocking fact that liquidness is a thing that exists very generally, independent of the things of which the liquid is made. I, also, I already mentioned solid stiffness, rigidity. If you make nanoscience on some atoms, look at very small aggregates of them, you will find that it isn't rigid. 
it's very difficult to distinguish the difference between a solid and a liquid, and in fact we don't even try. The difference between solids and liquids is macroscopic. Mm-hmm. I guess one question would be, if these are things that only appear to exist at a macroscopic level, are they meaningful at all? Or is it one continuous transition from sort of tight, rigid structures to loose and disaggregated structures? Yeah, that's a great question, but I take issue with it. You say they appear to exist. Well, that means they exist. You know, if you measure something and it has some properties, then it exists. You bet they do. And uh, the other side of that argument is we now have instruments that can measure at these tiny scales and prove that they don't exist on those scales. So physical science has enabled you to prove definitively that these exact things that you see in nature are definitely collective. There's no doubt about it anymore. Right. Now, there's no one who would argue with that? No. So though physics orthodoxy is by nature sort of reductionist, people don't have trouble with the notion that some things are collective, like the, like phase transitions, no. things like in that. In fact, in our normal training, we learn that heat, heat, the concept of heat is collective. It doesn't make any sense when you have just one object or two objects. So that idea is, is very mainstream in physics. Physicists generally are very confused about that. You will find they use the word fundamental to describe only the reductionist parts. And then if you ask them, is heat fundamental, they get, they get confused. But they shouldn't be. It's ridiculous. Of course it's fundamental. It's just collective. Fundamental meaning what? Well, fundamental is one of those words like sanguine that has different words depending on whose brain it rings around in. Uh, to me, fundamental means reproducible and exact. Something that you measure again and again and it's always the same and something on which you can stake your life as being true. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean the underlying reductionist parts of things. It doesn't refer to the fundamental building blocks necessarily. Well, there you use the word fundamental yes, to I define do. itself. Elementary. Yeah. The elementary building blocks, For the irreducible <clears throat> building blocks. That's right. So what we've discovered here is the word fundamental has different meanings depending on who's listening. For many people, it means the building blocks. So rigidity is not fundamental. Now, I disagree. I, I think that rigidity is really fundamental. If I'm in an airplane, I do not want the airplane to disassemble. And I know it won't. It's fundamental. I don't have to worry about that. It just won't happen. Now, you said uh, no physicist would have trouble with the proposition that phases of matter are a collective phenomenon. Um, but you do make some statements in here that I think would be considered heretical in physics. Where do you really uh, run afoul of orthodoxy here? Where you get into trouble is the universe. Because there, there is very general mixed-up thinking about the universe, which is very big in the physics press right now, and uh, I think is hurting us. That's one of the reasons I wrote this book. You see, all the evidence of the empty vacuum of space tells, it, tells us it's not empty. It's, 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 just, it's made of some stuff. And the properties of this stuff... Uh, well, we're, you have to figure out by experiment, but it's certainly not empty. It's more like a rock, a piece of window glass, than it is a 
empty Newtonian vacuum. Are we talking about dark energy? Or? No, we're actually just talking about empty vacuum. There's empty space around us here. It just isn't empty. It's full of stuff. What's the, uh, what are the symptoms of it being full of stuff? Well, it's just like a piece of window glass. You can see through it, but if you bang it with a, with a nuclear accelerator, then stuff, the particles come out. And the vacuum of space is like that also. If you bang it, things come out. The mathematical description of it is exactly the same as a piece of silicon. Uh, in silicon, we have particles and holes which, with which we make transistors. The empty vacuum of space has electrons and positrons, but it's the same thing. Uh, now, in the case of ordinary matter, you know that these beautiful properties you use to make transistors are emergent. They're very exact and a natural and automatic consequence of crystallinity. And you also know that, therefore, that observing them tells you nothing about the true underlying laws, whatever they are. Well, when you're in a situation like that, you've got a real problem figuring out the microscopic, the true microscopic laws because they're not falsifiable. If you are dealing with emergent phenomenon, you will never figure out what the microscopic laws are from experiment because they're universal. They don't depend on details. Nothing you measure reveals the true microscopics, and therefore nothing you measure falsifies a theory of it. There is evidence all over the place that our thinking about the vacuum is in that jam. What I mean by that is there is plenty of experimental evidence that the properties of the vacuum you see are emergent, just like the properties of a rock. And that means that no experiment you can do right now falsifies any theory of what the universe is actually made of. What sorts of theories are we wanting to check out. Well, we we're talking specifically about string theory, but it's any uh -huh. of them, actually. Uh -huh. It's any of them. Any of them. Um, let's talk about some other important uh, models of the universe and how you see them as collective or emergent. Newton's laws, for instance, which in the days uh, post-Einstein and post-quantum mechanics have always been sort of presented to us lay people as, well, a good approximation of how things on everyday levels work. Ordinary speeds, ordinary sizes, they pretty much sum up the world quite well. They fall apart at high speeds, vast sizes, and very small scales. Um, you say that's not really the right way to look at Newton's laws. There has always been immense confusion about how Newton's laws come out of quantum mechanics. And people still have conferences about it to this day. And uh, I, of course, don't like this very much. I made jokes about it in the book because those of us who deal with lots and lots of experiments get it. Newton's laws are emergent. They're just like the laws of rigidity. That's why when you take the thing apart to see how Newton's laws work, there aren't any Newton's laws. They disappear. The object has to be big enough for them to occur now, this reminds me of another example you give of an emergent phenomenon. Um, and I want to look at that example because it seems to um, shake up two pillars of, of physics, the speed of light and um, general relativity, Einstein's account of gravity. 
you say both of these things may not be fundamental in that old-fashioned sense of irreducible and elementary and and um, existing in pristine isolation. You say these are also phenomena that result from collective action. What I said is that it's possible, and if I had to bet, it's so. But of course, you can only make a statement like that if you have an experiment. I see no reason why... Uh, the universality of light and the principle of relativity itself can't be emergent. Why not? Einstein never said they weren't emergent. Einstein only said they were true, which is what they are. But it turns out there's a logical problem with that. No one has ever succeeded in writing down any theory of the vacuum that is both relativistically invariant and gauge invariant on all scales. In order to make it make sense, you have to violate one of them at very small length scales. Which one, you, you, you know, which is the right way? No one knows. And of course, this is a very upsetting thing. It's one of the reasons that people like string theory so much, because it appears that you don't have to do that. Uh, in fact, you do. In fact, it has a regulation problem also. It's just harder to see. Now, now, what about the speed of light, though? Now, this is something that we think of as um, invariant, absolute yardstick of, of, of the entire universe. How could this be a collective phenomenon? Well, um, what a great question. I'll turn it around and, and ask you, well, what makes you think it isn't? Good. I'm glad you asked me that, because I wanted to get to the... Um, issue of exactness. Mm -hmm. I think one of the articles of faith of reductionism is that when you get down to the bare microscopic essentials of things, that's where you find the real uh, constant numbers that don't vary at mm -hmm. all, that mm -hmm. give you exact results. So I'm asking, how could the speed of light be emergent because it's so exact and so invariant? Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out that most of the exact things that you know in nature are collective. And that includes, by the way, the charge of the electron. Charge of the electron is, is measured, as a practical matter, to greatest accuracy by means of two collective phenomena. One is the quantum Hall effect and the other is superconductivity. Neither of which exists when you take it apart. Um, so it's just so, not true that that exactness comes from the uh, from the parts. In fact, if you the experiments that work with the parts are much less accurate. Now, coming back to your speed of light question, um, why would you worry about this? That's, that's probably the better question. Why would you worry about it at all? Well, because of gravity. You see, everybody knows about black holes. They're very mysterious and they're they're kind of goofy, and you go in the black hole, and you get torn up, and you go away forever, and so forth. Well, <laughs> black holes, I think, are probably not true. The, that's the issue. Okay, The issue is, what, what would be the actual experimental properties of a very dense matter, very dense mass, such as probably you have at the center of the galaxy, uh, would it be like Einstein said, or would it be different? Now, we don't, we can't do that experiment, but I'm pretty confident myself that when that experiment is done, we'll discover that it wasn't right, that general relativity isn't right. Now, um, the, tr the, the 
safe thing to say is that right now there is no evidence of any failure of the principle of relativity on scales you can see. However, if you ask physicists, is it likely that the principle of relativity works at what we call the Planck length, very, you know, very, very, very short length scale associated with gravity, most of them will say no. Then you say, well, doesn't that mean that relativity fails and that they get confused? Okay. So in fact, our thinking about relativity is highly ideological. And this is uh, very amusing because it, it, it came about historically through uh, rather vicious op uh, opposition to Einstein. Uh, unnecessary because the experiment spoke very clearly. And as a result of those battles, relativity became a shibboleth. It's something you just can't question anymore as not being true. But you see, that's not right. The relativity is not, we don't believe in relativity because it ought to be true. You believe in it because you measure it to be true. And if someday uh, we measure that it's not true, well, you know, on some scale, fine. Well, what are the real implications of your position here for physics? What have been the negative consequences, for instance, of the reductionist mindset? And what are we likely to gain if we embrace the notion that most important phenomena or all important phenomena are emergent? A couple of things. Uh, the first is you have a renewed respect for experiment. The entire idea of physics as a logical discipline is then is then impugned, and um, of course, because of my background, I'm already in that mindset. Um, I always look at the experiments first and theorize second. Emergent principles have never been deduced, not even once. Every single one of them was discovered, and the people fought like cats and dogs over it because it was it mattered, and the reason went into the lore of science is because there was just no denying. It was just exactly true and very clear it was true. Now, um, so renewed respect for experiment. Um, the second thing is uh, maybe even more important, which is re-identifying where the frontier is. Once you understand that physical principles, the exact things, the rocks on which you can stand, are organizational, that means the frontier is behind you. Okay, it's all that stuff you used to say was details. Okay, stamp collecting. <laughs> exactly. Well, it turns out that's where the truth is. It's way back. All that stuff you threw out, and so that means the way you invest, the way you invest government money, the way you invest your life is different now, because the thing you're trying to do is behind you rather than in front of you. So it's it has very much to do with how people not yet born. <clears throat> and who wish to do science will invest their time. Now, when you say behind you, let's make that a little more concrete. Do you mean going back to an era when science was concerned with the surfaces and the multiplicity of things as opposed to the what they thought were the elementary details? Um, not quite. Not quite, although you're, you're warm. <laughs> no, it's that... <clears throat> uh, it's... it's um, but somebody once asked Igor Stravinsky what he liked about Beethoven, and his answer was, all those tiny notes. <laughs> okay. 
Well, <clears throat> that's the answer. It, it turns out that the impulse that drives people to understand scientific things, and physics in particular, is very deep. In fact, it's almost religious. And and uh, they want you, people want to understand why things are so. They want meaning. And that's what they're actually after. So where where do you go to find it? Where does a young person go to find meaning? Well, the point is, I think here, that lots of times, and maybe even maybe even all of them, it's like a painting of Monet. Okay, you have to, if to find the meaning, you have to step away from it. If you get up close, the meaning goes away. Uh, <clears throat> where are the laws that haven't been discovered yet? Where do you go to find them? Well, almost certainly they're just lying around. They're just lying around, and the, and the difficulty is proving they're there. I've had long discussions with biologists about this. You know, whether is it the case that living things are uh, built on engineering principles or just accidents? And most biologists think it's just accidents. Physicists are inclined to think it's it's there's some rules of some kind. That's of course a clash of belief systems too. But there is a beautiful precedent. Uh, the answer, I hope, is the right one, is that nature is, a is an a incredibly clever engineer and discovered a whole bunch of these organizing principles that occurred on small scales and exploited them to make these little engines that, that run your body. Uh, and thus, that the reason it's so hard to understand is you can't deduce them. You can't deduce them. You have to work backwards from the experiments and discover them. Uh, that being the case, um, the road to a deep understanding of life is contained in hunting down and identifying all of those principles. Now, you say that um, embracing the emergentist position means letting go uh, to some extent, of the ability to solve some problems ever. True? That uh, emergentist collective phenomena make it impossible to get down to the bare details of things in some cases. Almost. Actually, it's even worse than that. The, <laughs> the, when we use mathematics to describe nature, we're actually exploiting one of those principles. So... It isn't the mathematics that causes the principle to work. It's the principle that enables the mathematics to work. So the whole idea of mathematical mastery of the universe is false. It's a myth. In fact, the, when, when equations are working, when they're really right, what that means is that you've stumbled upon a principle of collective behavior. You've, you've stumbled on a rule, a, a, an, a relationship among measured things that is always true. And therefore, since it's always true, you can write it down as an equation. Now, you mentioned not being able to do that, uh, not being able to deduce. It, it turns out that we know when matter is schizophrenic, when it's very well balanced and, and can't quite decide what it wants to do, then it exhibits a set of phenomena that prevent you from knowing that prevent you from calculating. And it's actually very easy to see. Suppose you've got 
something that's either magnetic or not. And, and it's very well balanced. And you set out to calculate whether it's magnetic. Well, you make a little mistake at the beginning. That mistake has bigger and bigger effects. It's like the butterfly effect in chaos. And in the end, overwhelms all the beautiful calculations you did. So that the answer will be, will be so strongly polluted by this mistake that you, it doesn't mean anything. And you can't get there by going to smaller and smaller sample sizes and smaller and smaller scales. No, because, because then the, in the case of magnetism, there is no magnetism in a small thing. It's only in a big thing. So you have to go to big scales to see it. It's like trying to describe a cloud. Yes. You can't go into the in- interior of the cloud and describe it. <laughs> well, you can, but it doesn't tell you very much. <laughs> yes. okay? what's, what's important is the way it looks on the outside. Uh, this analogy, by the way, is not is not inappropriate. The the theory of the vacuum as it exists is just such a theory. It is very well balanced, and that balance is precisely what makes what goes on at the tiniest scales invisible in any experiment that you do. And by the same token, makes the that aspect of the theory completely unfalsifiable. Uh, I have a name for this unmeasurableness. I have I call it dark law. It turns out uh, most physicists don't believe in evil law. They believe only in the good laws. They uh, it, 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 it people. It's, it's fascinating um, psychological uh, psychological matter. You deal with these experiments all the time. It's clearly not reproducing. It's clearly awful for your life. But most scientists are incapable of thinking of matter as in moral terms. Um, even though, let me let me yeah, jump in and make sure yeah. I clarify. When you say most physicists yeah. don't believe in bad law, you mean that they refuse to believe that there's something fundamental that will always prevent them from knowing something. Yes. Epistemological barrier due to physical causes. Okay, It's easier to think of it as a technical thing that you have control of instead of a physical phenomenon that prevents you from controlling anything. Okay, uh, <clears throat> Now, that is... Once, once you've come to grip with that idea then it has amazing implications. For example, this is why you can't be a biologist by, by being a physicist. It's because the, the natural world, even at, even at very primitive scales, has these, has these dark laws, and they, they're, they're barriers of computation. You have, to, you, have to, you have to start on the other side of them with some principle of organization you know and work from there. And any time the matter undergoes, it has a decision that it's making about what kind of ordering to have or what kind of collective principles to give rise to, then it it gets this schizophrenia, and the and the, the, the and it gets perfectly universal behavior, perfectly simple and generic, and perfectly awful. So, I want I had an interesting conversation with. Uh, good friend of mine is Jewish, and he said, well, I, I have a better explanation for this. All physicists are monotheists, <laughs> which is true. Okay? We all believe in one thing, okay? But biologists are polytheists, 
Okay, and they know there are you know there are lots of little gods around, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. So physicists have a tremendous trouble with this that that the meaning could come from the children rather than from the father. But in reality, that's exactly the way it happens, and this is why the biologists are mopping the floor with us. And this is interesting because, of course, biology has its own schism between so-called reductionists who believe everything can be explained by looking at the genome, and its emergentists who say, no, higher-order principles uh, have to be invoked to go beyond genes to organisms and then to, you know, to uh, populations and so on. Absolutely. It's exactly the same effect. It's exactly the same schism, same thought process, uh, and the same problem, actually. Um, the, the, the genome is perfectly accessible, but the logical rules, going to function from the genome is presently impossible. And that you, it's the same rhetoric, oh, it's too hard. Okay, well, maybe there's a reason it's too hard. Maybe there are epistemological barriers in life, just like there are in physics, even though life is more complicated. You know, why couldn't it have these same simple things occurring? In which case, you will never do it. You have to first discover the principle, and after you've understood it, then you can calculate now, in proposing that there are these absolutely unbreachable barriers to knowledge, these epistemological barriers, these dark laws, are you saying that there are many places that science can't go, will never go? And in saying this, are you making yourself awfully unpopular among scientists, or is this, is this falling on a receptive audience? Um, you, there are too many questions at once. <laughs> Thank you. You're right. I should uh, do it over again. Well, no. Let me answer them. Because they're good questions. One of this is: Are there barriers you can't go across? N no. You have to measure. Okay. This is why we still have experimental science. The point is, you can't go across them by computer. You can't just start with some rules and start calculating. There's a there's a there's a brick wall there. If you want to find out how it works, you must do an experiment. Uh, so the the future I see scientifically is very experimental. It's it's not theoretical. It's experimental. So what sort of reception have you gotten in, in in discussing and presenting these ideas? Oh, just like all the good theories I've worked on, it's completely bipolar. Okay, they either love you to death or hate you to death, depending. Uh, and I'm not joking. Actually, this is a wonderful sign that you've hit something right on the head. If everyone agrees with you, that means it's trivial. If everyone disagrees with you, it means it's wrong. But if the if there's huge controversy, that means you've got the you've got the issue right on the money, and uh, that's what we're seeing here. And so I'm extremely pleased. Well, Bob Laughlin, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us today. Gee, thanks for having me. Robert Laughlin is a professor of physics at Stanford University. His book is called A Different Universe: Reinventing Physics from the Bottom Down. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Okay, now for the second half of our show, a conversation with Marin Alsop, music director of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. The festival gets underway a week from today here in Santa Cruz. And if you're asking what this part of the show has to do with the first half, well, think about it. What better example of emergent behavior and collective principles than a symphony orchestra? We'll learn about that and what it takes to be a superconductor from Maestro Alsop in this interview from 2006. Marin Alsop, welcome, or I should say welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, nice to be back. What keeps bringing you back? 
Well, I think throughout my career, um, you know, my manager never would understand why I would keep coming. You know, she'd say, uh, oh, well, that contract at Cabrillo is expiring. So, and I'd say, well, just renew it. And it's no <laughs> big deal. You know, they, they never quite understood that it, for me, the festival is not, it doesn't really feel as though it has a shelf life because it's so um, malleable and so flexible and, and it changes every year. And uh, this is, you know, getting together with friends and doing something you love for a couple weeks a year. So, I mean, how can you go wrong? And, and it doesn't, you know, the thing is it doesn't tire. It doesn't wear thin like being around people. You know how it is. It's a different kind of relationship altogether. Yeah. Uh, the orientation, of course, of the Cabrillo Festival is contemporary music, some of it brand new, getting its premiere here. Is that a place for you to really stretch out and sort of play in, in a way that you couldn't anywhere else? Um, I look at Cabrillo really as an opportunity to explore some pieces that I haven't known before, get to know some new composers for me, and then really I think the very positive experience, them experiences that I can then take to other orchestras. You know, doing people's music here, seeing the audience response, seeing how they fall in love with certain composers, that gives me a good sense about how those pieces will play in other capitals. So it is, in a way, kind of a, a hothouse environment for me, you know, to experiment a bit. Although um, I, I hope it doesn't feel like that. It's a little bit of a laboratory. Um, and also, it's a little, I think it's a little deceiving because the musicians in the, this orchestra, the festival orchestra, they all come because they love this repertoire. You know, so it's not a good barometer necessarily for how orchestras will react to playing mm, some of it mm. because these guys are so keen. Mm-hmm. Did you always want to be a conductor? The really short answer is yes, absolutely. I mean, since I can remember, certainly. Why? Well, my parents are both professional musicians, so I had to be a musician. And of all the choices in music, conducting was absolutely the most appealing to me. And I don't know exactly why that. I mean, of course, it's a story I tell about seeing Bernstein conduct when I was really young, maybe nine years old. And it was I was captivated by the whole the whole sort of mystique and excitement and aerobic quality of conducting. Mm. So I think, uh, you know, it just appealed to me. And, and I think I already understood that I had, I had real, a real desire to be in a leadership role with people. I think even at nine years old, I always, you know, I was always the captain of the team, even if I couldn't play the sport at all. <laughs> so yeah, I think so many things about it appealed to me from a young age. And I never... I never really deviated from that desire. When did you get your first chance to conduct an orchestra? Uh, I think the first time I conducted was, oh, I was older, you know, I I must have been in my almost 20, I guess. Um, And I played a lot of concertmaster work. I was uh, pretty successful as a freelance violinist in New York, and I was doing a gig for... um, Mel Torme, I remember, was the singer, and Carmen Cavallero was supposed to play Rhapsody in Blue. He did play Rhapsody in Blue, and the conductor never showed up. So all my friends knew I wanted to be a conductor, so they said, oh, let Marin do it. So I conducted That was great. Uh, so you were sort of, were you, you weren't an understudy. You were just no, no, there. No, no, I was just, just playing there. violin. And the conductor so didn't show up. He didn't up. show up. So, I mean, they, for this gig, there was no um, assistant conductor hanging around. So my friends were like, oh, Marin wants to be a conductor. 
So I said, no, no, okay, I'll do it. And so I did it. And that was fun. But I had conducted, you know, sort of informally with friends prior to that. I get a lot of my friends together and talk them into playing symphonies for me. So I'd had a little bit of a, a sense about it. I'd like to talk a little bit about the art and craft of conducting and, and start with a, a really dumb question. What exactly does a conductor do? Well, uh, that's that's a hard... I mean, it's really multi multifaceted what a conductor does. I mean, the literal nuts and bolts of conducting are there are certain beat patterns that a conductor needs to know in order to indicate what meter the orchestra is playing in. And then, of course, every gesture needs to convey the music in the score. So I have to convey the dynamics. I have to bring people in. I have to convey an emotional context. So there are a lot of um, physical technical things that a conductor needs to do. And then beyond that, it's about setting an atmosphere, creating an environment where people can be the best they can be. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of non-technical components, I think more sociological or psychological um, components to conducting as well, because it's my responsibility to be the messenger of the composer, um, but also at the same time to be the advocate of the musicians and to try to galvanize a hundred people to do the best they can and be the best they can be. When you're actually conducting a performance, you, you mentioned that you're, you're setting the time for the orchestra, you're controlling the dynamics, how loud, how soft, but you're also conveying the emotional, the emotional dimension of the music. How do you do that? Well, I mean, how, do, how does anyone convey emotion? Smile, frown? Um, sure, I mean, but it's not about putting it on. It's about really, I think, motivating the emotions from inside and trying to connect with people on a very authentic and human level. And so it's not really necessarily about smiling or frowning. It it depends who the individual is. For me, I'm not, uh, I think as a person, I'm pretty even, you know, I'm not, I'm not like a if it was my mom, my mom is, you know, over the top on everything. So if she were wildly smiling, you wouldn't mm-hmm. think twice about it. If I were doing that, mm-hmm. I think it would seem mm-hmm. uh, disingenuous. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I try to just be very, very sincere, very focused, very present. Um, and that, to me, is what sort of sparks the emotional curiosity of the mm-hmm. musicians. So... You know, the, the cultural stereotype of the conductor is um, it's typically a guy with, like, swept-back hair who's really histrionic, you know, jumping around on stage, hyperkinetic. Are you that way? Are you really expressive physically when you're conducting? I, I don't know. I mean, people say I'm very energetic, but I think I'm really pretty, again, pretty much who I am as a person, which is, um, you know, thoughtful and... I don't think I'm too over the top, but people may disagree. <laughs> it's so hard to assess your style. It's it's the same thing when people ask, you know, well, can you describe yourself? You know, if you have to meet someone you've never seen, what are you going to say? Well, you know, I'm 10 pounds overweight. I mean, that's not what you think. <laughs> you know, you don't, you say, well, you know, I've got this call here. You know, it, it's very hard to self-assess. Well, you're not uh, thinking about yourself when you're conducting. Right, I exactly, assume. exactly. And it's an, 
it's just being in the moment. I mean, when I see when I see uh, television programs with me conducting, I always think, well, what what was I thinking at that moment? But um, what are you thinking? When yeah, you I mean, I'm not thinking anything. I'm are just you, trying to be present. Are you like a conductor in the other sense of the word conductor? You know, like an electrical. Yeah, conductor. hopefully, in a way, just uh, being almost a conduit for. The composer, I mean, by the time the concert comes, we've done all our work, and it's really about letting go and, again, being very, very present in the moment. And I I try to do that. I think those are the most effective and inspired performances. I think you've alluded in some interviews I've heard to some of the obstacles um, that you've encountered, um, the difficulties it takes to become a... um, a high-profile conductor. It's it's got to be one of the most difficult uh, achievements in in music. I think to achieve the highest level in any profession is a challenge. You know, there, I would imagine it's just one percent of uh, of people in any given field can really be at the very very top. And conducting is curious because. It's so abstract that I think you almost have to have a magical set of ingredients that nobody really knows what they are. And it's interesting because one can be extraordinarily successful with one orchestra and then a big flop with another, and you've done the exact same thing. And it's very, very hard to tell. I mean, fortunately, I think I've been very lucky in generally having great rapport with most orchestras, but it's just very, it's fascinating to me because, you know, some of my colleagues, I'm good friends with a lot of conductors, and they'll say, oh, you're going to that orchestra, oh, they're really mean. Mm. Then I go there and I think, these people are really nice, you know. (laughs) It's such a matter of chemistry. I mean, it's just like making friends, and, you know, people react to each personality differently, and uh, it's really, it's almost like an, an anonymous basket of ingredients i mean you don't know what the what the ingredients are to find that recipe and i think you know when i give young conductors advice and even some of my extraordinarily talented students i you know i can almost feel who will succeed and who won't but i can't tell you exactly why wow and it's not as simple as that's a take charge kind of person no. Or a musically gifted kind of person. No, it's more than... It's someone who's going to be able to weather the storm of of all these elements you have to deal with. It, the pressure is quite unique. Um, you have to... I mean, to deal with 100 musicians day in, day out. I mean, musicians are very high-maintenance kind of people. They're, uh, they're artists. They're people with tremendous investment. Uh, they have large egos, usually. I mean, these are all important qualities. I, I'm not saying it in any derivative way. But then you have to try to balance being the leader. Usually you're younger than most of them when you start out. Gaining respect. Having a sense of humor but maintaining control all the time. I mean, these are, they're just, they're really, really tough things to define. Now, what is the dynamic between the orchestra and the conductor? I mean, uh, some people might imagine that it's completely top-down. 
You say what to do, they do it. It's not like that, though, is it? I think it used to be that way. Fifty years ago, probably it was that way. Um, but things have changed, of course. It's a new world. This is a world of collaborative uh, workplaces, um, consensus management in some cases, employee-owned companies. I mean, you just look at the world and, and around us, and and the music world is is a microcosmic re- representation, I think, of the bigger world. Um at the same time, I think it's a very conservative world where the maestro still has an aura of mythology and mystique around him or her. And it's still and, referred to by that word, which means master. Yes, but it, it is different now. It, it has to be a more collaborative relationship um, because of the changing nature of our world. And... It's a world where the musicians have a lot more say in what's going on. It's just the way things have evolved. Now, you've said that uh, you aren't self-conscious when you're conducting. You're not paying attention to yourself. It's the music and the orchestra you're concerned with. But um, do you listen to recordings of yourself? And if we were to listen to a recording of you conducting, would we know it's you by some, some characteristic of the music produced? Oh, I don't think so, really. Um, you know, I'd like to think that you would you would feel it was a very successful performance. You know, meaning that the pacing seemed right and the quality of the sound and the uh, that it would feel organic. I mean, that's what I strive for. Um, but I don't think I'm a conductor that is trying to um, weave a thread of almost idiosyncrasy through what I do. I'm, I'm actually trying to do the opposite so that I hope if you hear a Beethoven symphony by me, it sounds dramatically different from a Brahms symphony. Mm. Um, I'm not really looking to put my personality on anything, just trying to really maximize the, what the composer's intent was. That's my goal anyway. When a musician in an orchestra, someone who's not a soloist, makes a minor mistake, I, I think that it's probably not audible to to most people of the audience. Can a conductor get away with a mistake? I think a conductor can get away with a mistake more than a musician can, mm. but um, I think it's not a wise idea <laughs> because the musicians all know when the conductor makes a mistake. So I think that's a dangerous road, a very slippery slope to go down. Um I always take responsibility for mistakes that I make, and hopefully they are very, very few and very, very far between. Yeah, high-pressure position, really. Yeah. How do you um, how do you deal with the pressure? Well, it doesn't it doesn't feel terribly pressure-filled for me personally. Um, I say that, but then, you know, my doctor says, could you please not have any more vacations? Every time I take a holiday, I get really, really sick. So, I mean, I guess that's how I deal with it. You know, I just don't, I don't feel it during, during the main season. Um, but you know, when I get some downtime, I, I usually catch pneumonia or something like that. So clearly my body's doing a lot of good work for me. Now, as a, as someone who is, uh, an advocate of and um, often presenting contemporary music, you're in the position of having that composer not long in the grave like Beethoven or Bach or Mendelssohn, mm-hmm. but alive and kicking and maybe right there at the performance, at the premiere. 
is that a different kind of experience, um, having to take responsibility for someone's work and having them there? Oh, yeah, of course, it's a, it's a very different, um, different kind of dynamic because now you have another human being who can speak to you and give you comments and give you guidance. I, I find it, I think it's much easier when the person's oh, alive. Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. It seems like it might be a terrific burden if something no, goes wrong. No, not at all. It's actually quite, quite the opposite because I'm able to really say to a composer, so, you know, why did you write this part mm. or, or what were you thinking here and what was your motivation when you built this piece? And then, you know, as you get to know people, you get to know what their existential questions are. And generally, a composer is trying to answer those pers- very personal questions, just like an author. Um, I find that harder when the person's dead, mm. because you miss out on the subtlety of nuance of knowing someone and trying to read into them a bit. I mean, some composers are difficult, of course, because some people are difficult. But I don't think that ever affects my assessment of who they are and what they're trying to do. What does it mean for a composer to get her or his work debuted at a festival like this? Oh, well, I think the composers are very, they feel very privileged to have this experience. I think on every level, it's the perfect, it's the perfect environment uh, for them to experiment and to, to feel, to feel a generosity you know, from everyone about their music. And I have to say that the fact that we now have a composer workshop at Cabrillo as well uh, just adds another dimension to that, and that's for young aspiring composers so that they can come and hear their pieces played as well um, and get some feedback from sort of the master composers in residence. We should say that in addition to being the conductor, you are the music director of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, which means you are the one who selects these pieces. And you're the one, in a sense, who anoints these, some of these composers, um, you know, getting their chance to have their pieces performed at a festival by an orchestra. It's a lot of power over a, over a career. I mean, you could really you know, give someone their big break. <laughs> <laughs> sounding much more appealing now that you put it in that context. Well, well, I'm just thinking they must they must really love you for doing this. Sure. I mean, I I feel that. Uh but I I mean, I try to select composers who I could who I feel that I could bring anywhere in the world and make a case for their music. That's what I try to do. If I really believe in a composer, I continue to invite them back and then I usually try to get them commissions and programmed throughout the world because I don't think it's about power, but it's about obligation and and um, access and ability. I am in a position where I have an obligation to champion the composers I believe in. Um, you think about Kusevitsky or, or even Bernstein. You think about Bernstein and Mahler or Mendelssohn with Bach. You know, if these c- conductors had not championed other composers' music. The composers wouldn't have had the kind of success that they deserved. So I'm in a very fortunate position of being able to champion the composers I really believe in. Well, Marin Alsop, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. 
Marin Alsop is conductor and music director of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, which runs August 2nd through the 16th. You can learn more at cabriomusic.org.